Well, good morning, friends. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts 17 as we begin our look into the passage that Tim has just read for us. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one, and we've provided them within arm's reach of where you're sitting right now. If you look around, you should see a little hardback black Bible that we'd love for you to take with you as our gift to you after, after our time together this morning. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, before we were ever an it city, whatever that means, even before, even decades before, we were known as Music City. Did you know that we were known as the Athens of the South here in our, our wonderful little village? Yeah, how many hands, how many, let me see your hands, if you knew that we were ever known as the Athens of the South. I guess it was what you might call an aspirational nickname, a bit of clever marketing uh, back in the 19th century. Uh, probably had something to do with the fact that we had a lot of colleges, especially right after the Civil War, uh, and the fact that we really wanted to be known that way. I've lived here for 18 years, and I'll say that, that, I mean, this is subjective, certainly not quantifiable in any specific concrete way, but over the 18 years I've been here, I, I'll say it seems to me like in a lot of ways we've grown to look a whole lot more like the Athens of Paul's day than like the rural south that I grew up in. Uh, our prosperity is, is hard to deny over the last 18 years. Uh, you look around the skyline of our city, you're going to see cranes everywhere, state-of-the-art buildings, creative architecture popping up all over our landscape. The universities that first got us our nickname are still there, still thriving, in some ways expanding more and more and more. Our economy is powering on. The, the cultural impact of what gets created here spreads out way beyond the boundaries of our little city. Just like in Athens, we're a tourist town. People come here to have some fun like they would have gone there. But maybe even on, an even on a deeper level than this, it strikes me that our assumptions about how the world works, about what makes for a good life, are coming to reflect the Athens of Paul's day even more than the rural south of my childhood. The values, the ambitions that drive us... Uh, we can't assume, in other words, a general understanding anymore of, of how we as Christians see the world and our place in it. As a kid growing up in the rural South, there was this, I remember this really popular approach to evangelism called evangelism explosion. EE is what, we, is what it went by. I mean, fun story for some other time. I actually met my wife in childcare of an evangelistic explosion meeting. Our parents were both attending, not like as volunteers, we were, we were kids in childcare at an EE meeting one time. It was super popular because it was so usable. It was this approach to evangelism that boiled everything down into some talking points that, that genuinely anyone could master and use in conversation. And it worked well in the setting where I grew up. Uh, the, the conversation starter that you were, you were supposed to begin with was something like this. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And that worked as a conversation starter where I grew up because back then and back there, you could depend on a lot of shared assumptions behind that question that, that helped that question make some sense. You could assume that the person you were talking to probably believed there was a God. That that God was personal. That that God is paying attention. That that God is a God you'd have to give an account to. 
That death is coming someday, but death isn't the end. After you die, you stand before him. That, that there is such a thing as a heaven and that you should probably want to end up there. The main barrier in that context was apathy, just distraction, not paying attention to these things that were pretty well assumed by whoever you might talk to on the street or door to door. That question wouldn't work for, for most of my neighbors today. Maybe it doesn't work for you either. It wouldn't work for the, most of the folks I went to grad school with. It wouldn't work for most of the parents that I've met around the Little League ball fields in our neighborhood. Because there are a lot of assumptions behind that question that these friends just don't share. You can't assume a, a belief in an all-powerful personal God who's paying attention, much less a God that's interested in what you've done with your life and will ask you to account for it at the end. You can't assume an interest in a personal afterlife where you live on as you, even a good personal afterlife like heaven. My sense is, in other words, we're a lot closer now in our city to the Athens of Paul's day than to the rural south that I grew up in. And I don't see that as a really bad thing. Don't hear this as me saying, oh, woe is us. Look how far we've fallen. I see this as an opportunity. An opportunity to, to enter into a context a lot like Paul's, a lot like where this gospel had its birth. And to meet with precious people in that context on the same terms Paul met with his audience. And for that purpose, a purpose God has given us as a church in this time and in this place, Acts chapter 17 gives us a wonderful tool that we can use. Up until now, we've been watching Paul go around the world on these missionary journeys. We're in the middle of his second missionary journey, but up to this point, he's mostly been talking to Jews in synagogues. That's where we've seen Luke take us on deep dives so we understand Paul's message and how he got his message across. Today, we see him speak in the marketplace to people with no context for Judeo-Christian values who had a different way of seeing the world and their place in it. And, and in seeing him, in watching him engage those people, we will see ourselves more clearly as, as those living in this time and place and get the help we need to represent Jesus in our time and place. That's my hope and my goal, my prayer for our time together this morning. I want to simply show you what Paul saw in Athens first, so you understand the context. I think you'll see yourself in it. And then show you what Paul said to Athens. What Paul saw in Athens, let's orient ourselves in his world so that we can orient ourselves in ours. And then what Paul said to Athens. Point one, what Paul saw in Athens. Luke doesn't leave us to wonder very long. Paul, is, in verse 16, is waiting in Athens for the rest of his band. While he's there, he decides to take a look around town. I love that, actually. I love imagining Paul as a tourist, you know, zipping around Athens on a bird scooter, taking in the sights of the city while he waits on his buddies to join him. But his Yelp review of Athens is basically, well, verse 16, a city full of idols. Seriously, Paul? That's your takeaway from Athens? I mean, surely this would have been the most beautiful city Paul had ever been to. This was a city legitimately, deservedly famous for hundreds of years before Paul ever entered its, its city limits. And, and now 2,000 years later, just as famous, if not more so. 
and with good reason. I mean, Paul would have been walking or scootering around on the same streets that Socrates walked on, the same streets that Plato and Aristotle walked on. He would have seen the Parthenon in all of its original glory as it was meant to be. You can still see remnants of the sorts of objects that Paul saw on his trip in the finest museums the world has to offer. You can go see some in the Louvre. You can go to the British Museum. You can go to museums all over the world and see things that would have been in their prime, in their original context, there for Paul's sight. All he had to do was walk around town. Amazing. And most of us, if we'd walked through a city like that and seen what he saw, surely we'd be impressed by this almost unimaginable glory of humanity, of our creativity as people, of our intellect and our imagination, of of what we can do when we try hard and put our minds to it. But what did Paul see? He saw a city full of idols. (laughs) Maybe you're hearing that and you're thinking... Whether you'd admit to it or not, <laughs> what you're thinking is, Paul, just lighten up a little bit. Come on, man. Lighten up. It's Athens. Enjoy yourself. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, yeah, note to self, never take Paul on vacation anywhere. Uh, don't offer him the extra ticket to that game or the concert. But, but, but friends, we've, we've got to push, push through that for a moment here. We have to see... What's going on beneath the surface of Paul's reaction to Athens? We have to understand why he reacted the way he did. See, it's not as if he was personally offended by the idolatry he saw. I don't think that's what Luke would have us to notice. I don't think he was shocked that people's beliefs didn't match his. I don't think he was scandalized by what he saw. Luke says he was provoked. And he's using a very specific word. He's using a word that combines something of indignation, almost anger, with concern. It's the kind of word that that only ever works for someone who loves what he's seeing. It's the kind of word that fits the response of a mama who sees her child being bullied on the playground. That provokes her because it ought to, because she cares. Paul can't be okay with what he's seeing because behind all these amazing objects, the objects that now fill our museums, Paul sees something deeper at work that I want you to see. Two things. When he saw this city full of idols, he saw first precious people living as if this world is everything. He saw precious people living as if this world is everything. I think this comes out in some of the details that Luke gives us about Paul's time in the marketplace. Verse 17 tells us he's reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons like he always did. But he didn't just stay there. In the marketplace also, he reasoned with people. This was a a place called the Agora, a famous place for... I mean, marketplace doesn't even really cover it. It was kind of like... Uh, it was kind of like, I don't know, Twitter meets a PhD seminar, meets a shopping mall, meets eBay or something. It's a place where people came to do whatever they had to do. It was their one-stop shop for engaging with one another in ideas and in commerce and at every other level. Paul goes where they are and takes his faith with him because he sees his faith as relevant to all of it, 
Not some private affair that's just between him and God, but as something that touches how he sees everything and everyone. He goes into the marketplace where they are and he reasons with them, with whoever happens to be there. But in particular, Luke points out two groups that he spent his time with in this marketplace. The Epicureans and the Stoics, verse 17 and 18. Verse 18 says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were there. They were conversing with him. Now, now, it helps to know just a little bit about what these two schools of thought represented. That's where we get this sense that what Paul saw was not just a bunch of statues everywhere, but people who thought this world is everything. The Epicureans and the Stoics were two philosophical schools that were really famous, both born out of Athens, both local, homegrown ways of seeing things. Long before Paul showed up, these schools had, had, had earned themselves fame throughout the world. And in many ways, they were rivals. I mean, they were two different views of, of what makes for a good life. But on a deeper level, despite all that they would have thought about between themselves, they did share one thing that mattered even more. What they shared was the belief that you only live once, that you don't live very long, and that you got to make the most of life while you have it because this world is everything. The Epicureans, they were the ones who see that you don't live long in this world, that you got to make the most of it while you're here, and said, so therefore, live it up. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. That's the Epicurean way. They want to max out pleasure however you can for as long as you can. The Epicureans would have loved what's become of our lower Broadway district. Would have loved it. All the fine dining that we have down there now. They would have loved all the pedal taverns that are now all over our streets. They would have loved the live music options for every type and every taste, every preference. They would have loved the fact that, 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 that within roughly a square mile of our city, you could have seen a professional race, a professional uh, soccer game, a professional football game. And if you were really desperate on a weeknight, just a short Uber drive away, you could even watch a sort of professional baseball team. All in the, all in the same space of a, of a mile or two. They would have loved it. Epicureans would have loved the internet. They would have loved the fact that, that, that every minute of every day, you've got the promise of escape and pleasure one click away. From the cul-de-sac of Netflix binging to the cesspool of on online pornography, the Epicureans would love what we have at our disposal in our city today. The Stoics, on the other hand, took a different approach to the same problem. You only live once. You don't live long. Nothing you have is yours to keep. So strip things down to what matters most. That's what they would have said. Not live it up, but savor what you've got. Focus on what matters. Don't give your heart to a bunch of pleasures that are only going to break your heart when they're over. Don't just live in the future, always looking to the next thing, always trying for more, 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 more. Just stop what you're doing and enjoy your life for what it is. They were minimalists. Focus on the now and on what matters and don't kid yourself. You can't do it all. Uh, uh, I'm currently reading one of the best examples of modern-day Stoicism that, that I've seen in a long time. It's a, a book by a guy named Oliver Berkman called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. Basically, it's him picking on all those best-selling productivity books out there that promise to help you squeeze more and more and more out of every minute so that all of your wildest dreams will come true. Uh, he, he's tried all these ways, these productivity tips, 
He's been down this road. And what he believes is that they just made him and everybody else miserable. Because all this, all this talk about how to squeeze more and more out of an hour in a day just ends up creating an expectation that you always ought to be doing more and more and more. It just stirs up guilt and insecurity and restlessness. How do I measure up to how, what everybody else is doing with their time? And did I do enough to actually relax and watch a ball game this evening? Or, or did, did I not earn that yet? He says all this relentless work is just driven by a failure. This is a quote from his book. A failure to accept that this life with all its flaws and inescapable vulnerabilities, its extreme brevity and our limited influence over how it unfolds is the only one we'll get a shot at. A failure to accept that, he says. That's what drives us. Better to start with the assumption that we're limited and focus on getting more done. Not, not just more done, but doing what really matters for this little breath of life we've got. Roughly 4,000 weeks, but who's counting? It's roughly the number of weeks in an average lifespan of 80 years. That's stoicism. For all their differences, however different their methods, the goals of these groups were the same. This world is everything. We got to make the most of it while we're here. And in, and in that way, these philosophers... For all their highbrow thinking and talking and writing, they were, they were really no different than the uneducated masses who were bringing sacrifices to these statues all over their city over and over and over again. Because the, the idols Paul saw around him, for those uneducated masses who were still worshiping the gods they grew up with, these idols didn't represent some sort of connection to a divine power beyond this world that's over it and above it and ultimately responsible for it. No, the gods that the pagans were worshiping belonged in this world. They stood for the things those pagans wanted out of life here and now. This was their way of achieving for themselves, securing for themselves the life they thought would make, their, uh, make them happy. So in this, in this ancient world, so full of idols, you want to be beautiful? There's a God for that. You want kids? There's a God for that too. You want a good harvest? There's a God who's got you covered. You want a good time? Talk to Bacchus. You want success and love? There's gods for that too. Basically, you take whatever it is that you think will make your life meaningful. There's a God associated with it because the gods aren't the point. They're a means to an end. This world is everything. How can we get from it what we want? I think sometimes we can see idolatry, see all the little statues, the idols of the ancient world, and we can think superstition. Paul would have us to see idolatry and think, this world is everything to these precious people. And I think before we dismiss these folks as relics from an ancient past that we've thankfully outgrown, we need to, have, we need to stop for a moment of brutal honesty. You don't have to assign a name or carve a statue to make gods out of love or sex or power or achievement of one sort or another. You don't have to have a statue to worship and serve the exact same things that drove this pagan economy. 
You can make an idol out of the boyfriend you have or the girlfriend you wish you had, out of the grades you're hoping to get this semester, or anything else that you trust to make your life meaningful, to rescue you from the merely unremarkable, from blending in or settling for something average. Idolatry is alive and well today, which should make us even more concerned about the second thing Paul saw when he saw this city full of idols. He saw precious people for whom this world is everything, and it provoked him. But he also saw, because it's a package deal, precious people living like it's up to them to make the most of it. He saw precious people bow down under the burden that idolatry puts on their shoulders. Now, here's what I mean. In this way of seeing the world, whether you get what you're hoping to get out of this life is always going to be up to you. Yes, the idols were there to help. And yes, for the right sets of sacrifices, maybe you get there, you can turn their head towards you for a moment. But that's best case scenario. And even then, you still had to ask them to pay attention. You still had to pay them off so that they would give you what you want. It was only ever transactional under a best case scenario. And that's beside the fact that these gods weren't even real. Even thinking that they were, these people live with the sense that it's on them, on the people, to get the gods on their side. These idols and the ideas of these philosophers were just tools in their hands to make the most out of life. But the pressure, the responsibility for it was always on you. And surely that's why they were always looking for fresh material. I mean, the way Paul actually gets an audience with them is that they hear something in what he's saying that seems new. Some of them dismiss him as just a babbler. That's in verse 18. But others, others, their ears were, were, were pricked up a little bit. Verse 19, we, we know, we want, maybe know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. And then verse 21, Luke tells us as a bit of editorial comment, the Athenians and the foreigners who live there, they just always spent their time doing nothing but, but, but searching for, for something new. They, they just want to tell and hear something new. You can see why. People who think that, that their life is on them are going to always be looking for some new tool that they can use. This is a do-it-yourself culture. You're always going to need a new YouTube channel or a new lifestyle blog or something, something that can put the material that you need in your hands for doing the work that you know you're the one who's going to have to do. Now, I wonder, I wonder, does Athens sound any more familiar to you now? And as you look around your life, maybe even look into your own heart, if you don't see something of the idols that Paul saw when he entered Athens... I wonder if you don't see or even feel people, maybe yourself, bowed down by the weight of carrying them. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, maybe living as if this world is everything and as if it is up to you to make the most of it, I, I know that for a time, especially if you're young and relatively successful so far, there is a lot about this pagan view of the world that sounds pretty great. I mean, you've got freedom, at least it offers you that. You can decide what's best and go as far as you're able to go. There's opportunity for you in it. There's a chance to make something of yourself. But, oh, friends, it's a, it is a devil's bargain. 
one of my favorite writers, a guy named uh, John Updike, no longer living. In his memoir, Self-Consciousness, he talked about what drove his relentless uh, productivity as a writer. So many books, so many short stories, so many essays. It's, it's prolific, as much as anyone I know in the, in the 20th century. And he talked about his work and his memoir as kind of like riding a bicycle. You pedal and you pedal and you pedal and you pedal and you pedal because you, you know as soon as you stop pedaling, that bicycle falls over. And it'll only go as far as you carry it. This is the message of the Bible too. And one of my favorite places where the Old Testament talks about the, the folly of idolatry. It uses the image of God that you have to carry versus a God that will carry you. In Isaiah chapter 46, the, the prophet describes Israel giving in to the idolatry of their neighbors, taking gold to a goldsmith who will melt it down and then fashion it into something suitable. But then Isaiah 46 says, you, you just got to hoist it up onto your own shoulder and carry it with you. It can't even walk for itself, much less listen when you cry out to it, much less act on your behalf when you have nowhere else to turn. It's empty, powerless, and only a burden. And so, Isaiah 46, the Lord appeals to Israel. You were born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, the Lord says, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, I will save. That's Isaiah 46, 3 and 4. And once we see what Paul saw in Athens, once we see it around us and maybe in us, then we're ready for the God who will carry you that Paul offers to those who would hear him. Now we're ready for what Paul said to Athens. We've, we've considered what he saw in Athens. Now look with me quickly at what he said to Athens. He doesn't give them what they're expecting to receive. They want something new, a tool that they can use to make the most out of this life. Paul wants to introduce them to the God who rules over all of it. When he rises to speak, he acknowledges that in every way this city is very religious, he says, verse 22. And he claims this particular altar that he'd passed as his opportunity. As I passed along, I saw your objects of worship. I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. They gave him his, they gave him his window just a slight crack in the door and he's going to kick his way right through it because they're admitting ignorance. Basically, they're just covering their bases. They want to, in case there's a God out there who might get mad at us or who might have something to offer us, we'll just offer sacrifices to the unknown God and then, and then that, will, that will cover our bases. But Paul says, oh, so you're saying you don't know who God is. Let me tell you, this unknown God I now proclaim to you. And what he says about this God directly confronts what we've just seen about paganism. What he says about this God gives us our core foundational view of the world and our starting place for engaging friends and neighbors who don't yet see it. There are two basic points that Paul makes in his speech about God, beginning in verse 24. Here's what Paul said to Athens. First, the world and everything in it depends on God. 
I know that may sound simple, almost unremarkable, but it is a direct challenge to the way they saw the world. Paul refers to God as the God who made the world and everything in it. Verse 24. Remember, this world for the Athenians, it was just a given. It just was. It didn't have an origin or beginning. It was the ultimate reality. The gods were just as much part of this world as any one of us in their way of seeing things. So Paul doesn't start them with Jesus. He has to start them with Genesis. He can't start with Jesus because they don't yet know Genesis. He has to start with a, with a, with a God who in the beginning was already there. A God who made the heavens and the earth. In other, in other words, everything. That's where he begins in verse 24. And this God who, who is the ultimate reality, the only reason there's something and not nothing. Well, this God is not a God who lives in temples made by man. Let's get this clear. Imagine Paul standing here talking to them with the Parthenon in, literally in view. One of the greatest temples ever created. And he says to them, God doesn't live in temples made by man, not even yours. Surrounded by altar after altar where food was brought to these gods. He says, God won't serve your agenda because he doesn't need serving. He doesn't need anything from you. Verse 25. He's not for hire. He's not like a contractor or some sort of butler. It goes the other way with God. Verse 25. He himself gives life to mankind. Life and breath and everything. In paganism, you serve the gods so that then they serve you. With this God, he needs nothing from you. He gives. He doesn't demand. And this is no territorial God limited to just one place or one nation or one type of thing you might want out of life. No, Paul says, he made, this is verse 26, from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Everything depends upon God. That's the first thing Paul said to these Athenians. And if he's right about God, there is a challenge and a comfort in what he's just said. A challenge for them and for us, a comfort for them and for us. If Paul is right about God, that this world and everything in it depends upon him completely, that is a challenge that we need to take seriously. There's a blow here that we need to absorb. We don't have, here's the challenge, we don't have the significance in this world that we might like to have. Think of Athens as this huge, massive monument to human self-sufficiency. Basically, it was an advertisement for the best that we can do, the best that we could hope for. Look what we could build. Look what we can create. Look what we can figure out about life. So much so that the Athenians thought of themselves as superior to all other peoples. They, were, they would refer to other peoples as barbarians. And Paul's saying, no, 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 that, that, that's not how it is. Whatever good you see around you glorifies the one who made you, not you. The one who gave you life and breath and everything. And that one made all other people too. In all other places. With all their different tastes and art and architecture and fashion. Surely, friends, we need this challenge even more than they did, don't we? We are not calling the shots in our lives. 
We are not captains of our fates if Paul is right about God. We are not fierce and courageous warriors out there taking the world for our oyster. We are utterly, completely dependent on Him for life, for breath, for everything. But there's a comfort here too. Not just a challenge. There's a comfort in this too. Because even though we don't have the significance we might like to have, if Paul's right about God, we have more significance than we could have ever imagined for ourselves. Your life matters, friends, because you matter to the maker of heaven and earth. In the pagan way of seeing the gods, they didn't really care about lowly humans at all. Here's how one scholar put it. True, a god or goddess might occasionally take a liking or a loathing to some particular mortal. For the most part, though, the gods were out for themselves. They were mostly indifferent to the joys and sorrows of all the Marcuses, Gaiuses, and Juliuses of the world. Maybe you could turn their head with a right offering here and there, but otherwise they're just not paying attention. And they don't care how things come out for you. How different this God that Paul now proclaims to them. This is a God who needs nothing from you. But that doesn't make him indifferent. Like he's got no reason to pay any attention. The fact that he needs nothing from you is what grounds his generosity to you. He doesn't need what you bring to him. He's here to give to you. Give life, breath, everything. And you don't even have to ask him for it. He sends rain without being asked. Food without being asked. This is a God who pays attention. Every nation, every person in a nation, in a place where God has has, has put them. Think of that. He's paying attention. It's not arbitrary. It's not random. This is a God who cares. And, and, And the most stunning thing of all, is the reason for which he created humans to begin with that, Luke t- that Paul tells us here in, in Luke's recounting. Verse 27. He made it from every nation of mankind, just from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth. Why? Verse 27. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Do you see the point? He made us. He feeds us. He places us where we are that we might seek after him and find him. He made us to enjoy a relationship with him. This God who is not of this world is near to us still. Friends, your life matters because you matter to God. It doesn't matter because of some contest you may or may not win towards beauty or fame or wealth or fun or whatever else you might be hoping to achieve. You you matter not because of you at all. It has nothing to do with how far you're able to keep on pedaling that bicycle you're on. You matter because you matter to the maker of heaven and earth. He made you and takes care of you because he loves you and wants to know you. You won't find this God out there. The first thing Paul said to Athens is that the world and everything in it depends upon God. That is a challenge for sure, but it's a wonderful comfort. And it sets up the second thing Paul said to Athens. He said this world and everything in it depends upon God. Well, we close with this. 
we owe everything to God. This world and everything in it depends upon God. Therefore, we owe everything to God. This comes out in verse 29. It's like his sermon application. He's just said what he said about God. He said that everything comes from him. We are God's offspring, not the other way around. Therefore, we ought not think about the divine thing like, being like a gold or silver or stone image formed by the art and imagination of man. Don't think like that. He doesn't come from us. He isn't shaped by us and our imagination. He has his own identity and we come from him. Instead, well, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Do you see what Paul's saying? Because this world and everything in it and you yourself depend upon God, God does not answer to you as a stone might answer to a chisel. As a lump of gold might answer to a fire and the one who shapes it. You are accountable to God. You will answer to him. This message was surely as far into their context and to ours as what he's just said about God. And they're thinking life is your own. Death will be the end of it. Meanwhile, the world just goes on and on and cycle after cycle after cycle. But Paul says, no, your life belongs to the God who made you. And no, this world is not just on an endless loop like an album on repeat. It's a story with a plot. It had a beginning. It's building to an end. There is a day appointed, he says, already fixed on which this God who made you will judge you. Now that is a warning, friends, first of all, to us. It's a warning of a final judgment that is to come. A judgment that Jesus spoke of often. A judgment that Jesus himself will carry out. When we don't recognize God as the maker of heaven and earth, the one on whom everything depends, it's easy to just live life as if our lives are ours. To see the good things we enjoy as, as, as good things we're entitled to. And to see really the only question is not, not really what we do with them, but how much we'll get to enjoy. But the Bible says everything we have comes from God, the one who made us. And whether we acknowledge him or not, we depend upon him and owe everything to him. So that means the question is not... It's not what we'll make of ourselves and our gifts, but whether we'll use our gifts, use our lives in ways that honor the God who gave them. When we worship the gifts he's given us as if they were ultimate, we tell a lie about the God who gave them to us and his value. And on the day of judgment, that lie will be upended the record will be set straight. And that day is coming, Paul says, because Jesus has been raised from the dead. This isn't just a myth. 
It's not just a tool for social control. It's not just this thing like elf on a shelf created to create to, for the impression of some sort of consequence for bad behavior. As if Jesus is just up there watching and he'll get you if you, if you slip up. It's not a tool devised by men for their purposes. It's, it's something confirmed in history with the living, breathing, resurrected body of the one who will ultimately accomplish this judgment. It's coming. But Paul would not have us stay with this warning. It is more than a warning. It's an invitation. Because right in the middle of what he's saying, he's inviting us to repent. The call to repentance is a call to come back to the God who made you. Come back to the one who's been giving you good gift after good gift after good gift, even when you gave other people credit for it. To come back to the one who is not far from you. Because the amazing message that Paul has been preaching and Peter before him, the, the message that always builds towards repentance and the offer of forgiveness, the amazing message at the heart of our faith is that this God who is so far beyond the world, the God on whom this world and everything in it depends completely, the God who made us to seek after him, has come to us to seek and to save the lost has entered this world that he made. In the person of his son has taken on a body that could be killed as a sacrifice for sin and has raised to new life not just to judge but to advocate for anyone who will trust in him to justify their lives rather than keep on trying to do it themselves. Christ lives he will judge the world in righteousness. But you can have him for your advocate, if you will. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see not just what Paul saw, but to see the beauty of what Paul offered and to claim it for ourselves as our only hope in life and in death. We ask you to do this work in our hearts because we depend on you not just for life, not just for breath, but for everything, including the faith to trust you. And we ask you to give us that faith now in Jesus' name, amen.